Good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are. This is Chris, and today we're going to talk about something a little bit outside of the boundaries of leadership and life. We're going to talk about love. And this is a really complicated topic because uh, there are so many levels of love. If we talk about the seven levels of human being from God to all the way up to love to, as you can well imagine, there are seven levels of love from got to, which is pretty much uh, got to have you and got to get away from you, all the way up to should be with you and shouldn't be away from you, should have you and shouldn't need, need you, I need you, I want you, I want you. And as we rise up through the cone, the quality of love grows, but possibly the sexual... Um, uh, drive that is very much the evidence of the lower levels of love, which is lust, um, evaporates and transforms itself into higher, more intimate, more purposeful uh, love. And a lot of people think that their relationship has shifted out of sexual connection and into some bad space, but actually it's evolving and um, as long as there's still attraction and intimacy and the desire to be with somebody and live purposefully and caring and, and respectfully, we can go all the way up the spectrum to where Tantra and um, my book Sacred Love was written, which is a non-sexual form of relationship with another human being that involves just holding and, um, and deep... Uh, unconditional connection. So to talk about this midway through your 30-day challenge is probably uh, a good transitional thing because I think to understand spirituality, understand the universe, understand the laws of nature helps you deal with the lower stuff that comes our way, which gets in the way of staying in the higher realms of the cone. In other words, we buy into the bottom end of the barrel because we Sometimes we think we need to in order to to live happily. We 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 uh, might think that if we're not excited at work, or we're not stressed, or we're not um, have anxiety, or if we're not uh, worrying about something, or if we're not you know wanting to screw each other, and if we're all these things, if we think it's possible to think that if those things aren't happening, we're not in a, a really great space but inspiration replaces motivation at the top of the cone and inspiration is a very 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 powerful inner force that doesn't always manifest as outer trembling it doesn't always express itself in volcanoes erupting and tsunamis it's more tranquility and it's more powerful and more strengthening and so I just want to talk about this, if you forgive me, on a, this very, very long, unusually long uh, audio. If you watch the activity that's going on about an anthill, you'll see a small army of earnest working ants tugging away at what to them is hard and important work. The ants don't see you because you're too big. They no doubt fuss about and worry and they have their anxieties and they have their stresses. They live for short periods in, in a relative sense anyway. 
and therefore have forebodings of what the future has installed for them. They believe that there is importance in the universal plan is huge, but you laugh because they're little and actually you accidentally walk on a lot of them and don't really care. You look at them and say, what in the hell are you worrying about? Why are you fussing over all this work, which in the bigger picture is trivial? You know they came into being without exercising any choice in the matter and they will leave in the same way. If you lived on an anthill and never looked beyond, then you would be a citizen of that anthill. If you looked outside of that anthill, at some of the fields around you, a broader perspective of nature would become obvious. If from the fields you look at the forests and then look at the valleys and the mountains and the trees and far across the ocean to other lands, your viewpoint would be greatly shifted and you would be a citizen of the anthill without the anthill perspective. If you think that the earth is the centre of the universe and that human beings are the chief purpose of creation, you'll be like an ant in the anthill who believes that their little anthill was the heart of the universe and that they were the climax of all existence. They would worry about the sand going to the left and the sand going to the right and they would fret and stress about all sorts of things because goodness knows they think they're important. Their perspective is so small and so self-defined because they never sat on top of the anthill and looked into the distance. They were, they were never f more than 10 metres from their home. To this ant, the anthill was a, a mighty, massive matter. But the great operations of the universe are taking place in another part of the sky. New worlds are being born. Suns are coming into existence. New systems are being formed. And all is life thrilling and swiftly and omnipotent. This is where you want your spiritual perspective to come from, to emanate, because this is where you must travel to gain it. From the universe looking back, our earth has less importance than one single grain of sand on all the beaches on all the earth. If you are able to imagine your earth as a tiny grain of sand in the midst of endless masses of sand on a beach, there would be billions and billions of ants crawling all over this grain of sand. One grain of sand. So relative size is important. One of those ants is the king, another is the emperor, another is the queen, and one is the president of a great republic, another is the mightiest financier in, in their world, another is a, a person of gigantic wealth, and they are all like millions about them crawling for their brief period over this grain of sand, only to be absorbed into its surface and disappear quite quickly, while other, other ants come forth and do the crawling for their brief period and likewise go for nothing. And this grain of sand that we're talking about is our earth. The earth is a grain of sand. How many people on this grain of sand think of the great drifts of other sands that fill the sky? How many people think of the world beyond, of the galaxies, of the next universe, and the varied array of heavenly wonders that make up our cosmos?
if you've never been more than 10 meters from home and some think this makes a long journey, you will have a very small viewpoint. So if instead of measuring light from the narrow walls of a room, you viewed it from the wide expanse of the earth, you will think differently. Now you can conjure up the idea in your mind that this grain of sand on which you live is a very, very, very small part of the sky and that operations are going on elsewhere that almost totally ignore this small world. You would seek a new viewpoint. Maybe even your worries would be less. There was once a strange man who had a most powerful microscope and he silently carried one grain of sand to his laboratory. He placed it under a very small microscopic place where it appeared like a great world, so full of variation that it required weeks for him to study it. After a while, he placed it under even a more powerful microscope and now he could still see a still larger world. And at, at, at length, after months of study, he placed this grain of sand under one of the greatest magnifying um, um, uh, microscopes ever invented. And that was years ago. And ever since that time, he's been engaged in making maps of the grain of sand. And he finds that it contains hills and valleys and mountains and peaks and canyons and upheavals and depressions, just as many of those on our earth. Our strange man with his grain of sand says that if a race of people suited to this grain of sand were to appear on it, they would have as large a world to live on as we have here, given comparative sizes. So he took the grain of sand back to the beach and placed it in a thimble full of sand, then looked over the whole beach of sand and made an estimate of how many thimblefuls are on this beach that he took the grain of sand from. And then he could see the importance of this grain of sand in the cosmos. It's no different to our world in, a, in the universe of stars. Relative size means everything. It means clearly that if there were millions and billions of people on a grain of sand so small that it was wholly unimportant to our gaze, they would seem as great to themselves as we do to ourselves. And a grain of sand would appear as vast a world to them as our world seems to us. There may be countless peoples, tribes, nations, activities and generations in that tiny bit of sand just as there are on this planet. To us, those people would be insignificant, yet to themselves they would be all important. They would plan and worry and find and make peace and win and lose and play squash and be born in pain and die in suffering, just as we do, and life's problems and struggles would be just as serious. They would have elections, politics and graft, the rise and fall of governments, trials in court where defendants would tremble and all the business of existence would continue with such great importance. Cities have never withstood a hundred centuries of time. So no work of humankind, no building, no rare act, no monument will survive long into the future in universal time. 
The axis of the Earth is constantly swinging the poles towards the Sun. It's only a question of time when our tropics will be ice-bound and our great cities will be buried. Global warming is just a small fragment of the inevitable. Our individual place in this puzzle is absolutely unimportant. Destiny is planned. Nothing we can do can change the big story. We can only modify the little one. You are less than one leaf in a tree in a forest of a hundred million acres of trees. A hundred years from now, your history will be totally obliterated. This is not to give you a sense of insignificance. It's to give you a sense of preciousness, a self-talk that enables you to celebrate and enjoy and love life. Of course, I'm talking about your spiritual viewpoint here. Your lower mind will shudder at this reality. What? Me? Irrelevant? Who does he think he is? And here is the witness to all the drama on earth. Because all these little lower minds argue that they know what is right and what is important because this creates an identity. An identity is, after all, a sense of self-importance. Everybody thinks their watch tells the right time. You are one person only. In a crowd of the thousand, you are wholly unnoticed. In a mass of 100,000 people, you could hardly expect to be regarded at all. 10 times 100,000 is a million, and 10 times 10 millions is a billion, and you are just one of humanity, and you exist in the context of just one single generation on this planet. This earth has welcomed generations and generations of people for for more than 200,000 years, probably for half a million years, and will continue to do so as nature has a predestined predestined schedule and remember the earth gets closer and closer to the sun every time it goes around the sun and sooner or later we can't live here we won't need a microwave oven this vision is to impress on your mind the fact that you are but one of eight billion people living today and they are but one generation in an endless procession of other generations that come and go in rapid succession, soon forgotten and erased from the face of the grain of sand. What do you know about your great-great-grandfather? The fact that he liked something? Or your great-great-grandmother? The fact that she liked something before dinner? What do you know? We are trying to give meaning to our life, which is really inconsequential. And this is an important discovery when you're dealing with stress. We compare this bit of sand to our entire universe. We see that matter is composed of millions and billions of atoms, which are far apart and moving in orbit in the same way as our solar system and the planets and satellite moves in our our universal space. Then we add the knowledge that in the ultimate formation of matter, nothing touches. And that is near the truth. Matter, resolved into its primary parts, is practically nothing but empty space. Particles of matter orbiting in atoms, 
with 99.99999% of the thing we call an atom, empty space, thin air, nothing. So in struggling for life, we are grasping at empty space. How scientific is that? At best, the wealthiest person on earth owns nothing, in a material ex sense, except empty space. Now, you can think back over your day and, if possible, life, in wonder of the effort and fear that you have exerted in the gathering of what is totally empty space and wonder what you were really thinking in that process. Contemplate the smallest particle in matter and then the largest planet in space and consider the vastness of empty space that we call life. And now you're beginning to develop a universal perspective. It's like watching that anthill. And this is what we need to bring to work. Go to a heap of sand, the biggest you can find, a beach, take one grain, lay it carefully down somewhere on a piece of paper as your future property. No one will prosecute you for stealing a piece of sand off the beach. After having carefully and securely taken possession of this sand, so that you cannot possibly lose this piece of sand, then begin to count some of the other grains of sand that lie in this place where you took the grain from. Get a handful, estimate the number of grains that it contains, then look over the whole heap of sand and make an estimate of how many handfuls are in the total pile of sand that you've taken your grain from. Then imagine you are standing on the beach and it's two kilometers wide, stretching over and under the sea for 20 kilometers long or more, and about 100 meters deep filled with sand. Try to get it a picture in your mind of the number of grains in sand in all that mass, and then look to see what the value of your real grain of sand is compared to the whole area. You're going to get an idea of the importance of this earth in the galaxy in which it lives, and in turn this galaxy in the Milky Way and the context of this in the known universe. As one of billions and billions of known galaxies, I think Hubble has currently measured 60 to 70 billion galaxies with trillions of stars in each galaxy in the cosmos so far, and it's still working on it. Study this proposition until the whole vision impresses you. Our Earth is no more than a speck of cosmic dust. Dwell on this thought as you enter sleep tonight. Take the grain of sand for which your lower mind will claim as yours. It will even die to protect it. So you now own it. It's yours. It's your property. That grain of sand. Now look at it. If, to, if you wish to bring only your physical mind to view it, then you need not to be alone. But if you wish to see it with your psychic mind, try being alone with your grain of sand. Look at that grain of sand, one grain. Imagine that it can be seen under a microscope. And if you have one and can enlarge the grain a hundred times, all the better. But your imagine, can, imagination can do it just as well. Suppose you could magnify it a thousand diameters or 10,000 times, what do you have? Suppose you belong to a race of people that were created small enough to live on this grain of sand. 
You would have no way of knowing the perspective of where you existed. You would think your grain of sand was the mightiest world on on which a hundred-story building would be a wonder of the ages. And although in a handful of sand, no one could see you or your big building. And such is the effect of a spiritual viewpoint. It puts life in perspective. Build a, build a solar system of the same comparative size which, in which our Earth lives. Our sun is more than, excuse the old language, but our sun is more than 19 million miles from Earth. It is 1,250,000 times larger than the Earth. The sun could absorb into its body our world and would absorb it like an ocean would absorb a drop of water. 1,000 Earths, if they all went in the sun at one time, would be like a drop of water in comparison to the size of the sun and would be devoured in a flash of heat. All gone. All people. All people. All cities. All governments. All nations. All earths. All fish. Everything. Gone. The sun is more than one million times larger than the earth. The solar system consists of the sun and nine planets. Of these, Jupiter is the largest and it would take 1,200 earths to make one Jupiter. But all the planets together and the thousands and thousands of moons make only a drop of bulk compared to the sun. Now, think again. Take the grain of sand and glue it to the wall. And I suggest you do this. Glue it to your bedroom wall. Then, take a golf ball and glue it to the same wall about two metres away. Around... Two metres away. So the earth is represented by the grain of sand and the golf ball is the sun. The only purpose of this is to impress on your mind continually the littleness of earth. And now consider that the golf ball, our sun, is one of the smallest suns in the galaxy. And if you were to put it next to the closest star on the wall, you would need to place it at least a hundred miles away. In other words, if you place the nearest golf ball, the nearest sun, close to your golf ball, it would be a hundred miles away. Then consider there are millions and millions of suns in our galaxy. In fact, trillions. This viewpoint is the spiritual perspective. Now you might begin to see more enlightened perspective. The ball and the grain of sand should remain on the wall, on your room, at, at all times where you can see them so that they may arouse the feeling of how unimportant the things that we get consumed by down into our lower mind really is. We began the viewpoint of the ant, the little life, the grain of sand, and we looked into an anthill, then homes and offices of the so-called busy people, and then the whole world itself, we're, we're about ready to take the journey further and step out into space itself so we can see our Earth from the same perspective that we saw our grain of sand. We depart Earth. Are you ready with me? 
we depart Earth. We're travelling at the speed of light, one million miles each five seconds. And now, in a few seconds, we're at the moon. Here we meet a fellow space traveller who has journeyed the millions and millions of years from the centre of the cosmos to visit our Earth. We sit on the moon for a rest and we watch this creature as it observes our planet. What would they see? They see our Earth go around once every 24 hours and on, our, on its surface they think, see things moving about, uh, uh, very similar to little ants. These objects it discovers are on two legs and they have a round knob on the upper end of their body which they guard more carefully than they do the rest. The round knob on the upper end seems to have a special value. So it watches all these and soon ascertains that the round knob of each thing is a sort of a governing globe containing the power to instruct the rest of the body. We watch more with this visitor from outer space. We see that these things on Earth go into houses where it becomes dark, or most of them do. It seems to be a general custom with the majority. Others make imitations of the sunlight and try to see things as if the sun were still shining. They flick on a light switch. When the light appears each morning, the, the ants, or the people with the ball on top of their head, come out in their millions all over the planet and they are busy doing all sorts of things. Their ant hills are generally square and triangular buildings and countless ants are always making more of those things to live in and work in. These self-important things worry and plan. They suffer, fight, eat, get well, get sick again and then they die. They even dig holes in the surface of the earth in which to drop their dead. They grieve a lot when they put them down, those holes, and, and because of that, they go down themselves in a very short period of time. So they go on from generation to generation to generation, some thinking it all right, others not thinking at all, and most of them wondering what it all means. Thousands of years come and go in which time, nature, smoothed out the surface where the dead have been buried. The anthills, collections of those buildings, cities are levelled to the ground to be forgotten so that after a brief lapse of a few thousand years, all is gone. And not a trace can be found of the ants that once darted there, here and there and all over the place and new ones take over. And they think they're important and relevant. And here the traveller from outer space starts to laugh for the very first time. So we continue travelling. A few more seconds at the speed of light takes us past the moon. A few hours takes us outside the outer confines of our solar system. Soon we've travelled at this breakneck speed, one million miles every five seconds, for 24 hours. And we're still no nearer to our nearest uh, star, the, ne the nearest star to our sun, Alpha Centauri. The closest star of the billions that make up our galaxy. Alpha Centauri is still a tiny speck in the distance. Will another 24 hours help us travelling at the speed of light? Will a week travelling at the speed of light reduce the distance from where we are to Alpha Centauri? Surely it ought to, for one million miles every five seconds, kept up 24-7, ought to make a vast inroads in space. 
But the handicap is not our rate of speed, but it's the awful size of space. A whole month passes and we're traveling at the speed of light going one million miles every five seconds. We're traveling 24 seven and a whole month passes and we're still no closer to the nearest star of the trillions that we can see in the sky. Then a whole year and Alpha Centauri is still just as far away. And we know that we have been going in a straight line towards it the whole time. There has been no deviation from our course and still we don't get any closer to Alpha Centauri. A second year passes. We've been traveling all the time as fast as light travels or one million miles every five seconds. And yet after two years of such speed, Alpha Centauri seems not one little bit larger. The part of the sky that lies between our solar system and Alpha Centauri is a void the, diff, the distance of, and I have to read this out, 25,000 million 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 miles. To our travel there at the speed of light, it requires over four years of human time traveling at one million miles every five seconds, 24-7, it takes over four years to get there. And if that star should explode, as all the stars do, and become dead and scattered, we would not know it for more than four years on Earth. That's how long it would take light from that star to change, extinguish and get here and be seen by a telescope. We are, as it is said, behind the times in a very big way. Our solar system, the area in which all of our planets circle our sun, is six million miles in diameter. The distance between us and the nearest neighboring solar system is empty and would be equal to more than 4,000 of our solar systems all placed in one line, far enough apart to prevent each sun robbing the other of its planets, etc. Our whole solar system with its great planets is so small that it's a dot in the sky. Yet on Earth, we thought that our life our one life was really, really important. Countless generations have come and gone, and there were countless persons like ourselves who thought that our Earth was the center of the sky and their life was so valuable. And now that as now the traveler we met who was really laughing their head off at our definition of space and time, when they realized that we thought the intention of our life was to make good of it. In fact, our traveller has, has begun to hyperventilate with laughter. He can no longer sit up and begins to roll about in, in hilarity. We are like a drop in the ocean, important but irrelevant. To continue our destination, we must confess that the vehicle that travels distances and measures time by earthly means is not going to make it. You can comprehend what distance is from the little world that we left. You remember that we passed our sun and we were astonished to learn that its diameter was more than 1 million miles. Earth is only 8,400 miles. And we passed other suns whose diameter was 10 million miles and more. And our sun seemed little in comparison. When we left the Earth, we thought we were going away from our world, that this little thing was the centre of our universe. We believed, as others believe, that our planet with its circumference of almost 
25,000 miles was a giant home for humanity, yet it faded from view in a flash. Four seconds, in fact. It was a tiny, insignificant little world that we left. Moving by the light route, moving at the rate of 189,000 miles per second, for more than one million years on the journey, we were only at the centre of our own Milky Way galaxy. <laughs> it is one galaxy in the space of in the vastness of space, where, as I said before, Hubble has measured 50 to 60 billion galaxies. Therefore, we must release the physical dimension of travel. We must take flight and speed on our wings, not of light, not using earthly measurements, but using the power of thought and come to the central courts of what we call heaven. By a change of pace from light to thought, we traverse the vast expanse of space in a few seconds of actual time. It makes a great difference. It makes a great difference how we go. Light is swift. Electricity is swift. A ray of light will pass around the earth six times in one second. But light, as swift as it is, cannot serve the demands of true knowledge. We must use our imagination and thought as a vehicle. We must go in thought where humans cannot go. And in doing this, we become truly citizens of the universe. What I've encouraged you to do so far in the 30-day challenge, what I've engaged with you is the ability to think beyond the boundaries of tangible reality and start imagining and start using this higher consciousness part of yourself to explore love and to explore work and to explore life and to recognise the vastness of a different viewpoint. Now I'd like to give you a map. The map I promised at the start, a precious map that will become yours. It's a map you can carry back all the way to Earth. Of course, you can return here many times if you choose it. I've shown you the way to get here. And if you return often enough, it can become instantaneous. It can become your viewpoint from which you see the whole of your life, the whole of life on, in existence. It's called a spiritual viewpoint. So we've reached now the centre of the universe by thought. There is no tomorrow, no yesterday. It's an eternal moment. Your heart's open and there's nothing to close it. There are no people because the separation between all things has vanished. One is all and all is one. So there are no conversations. Silence is beauty. Worry and fear and anxiety are banished. They relate to time, the past and the future. And here, in the centre of the universe, neither exist. Freedom is the keynote. There is a music, but not of the years. It is the sound of harmony. That perfect harmony. Our spirit celebrates and laughs at the dimension of life, the expanse of it and the wonder. Reason and logic are banished. There is no time, so there cannot be a past to consider nor a future to map. All time is condensed into this experience. Emotion is also impossible because without time, fear of the future or guilt of the past, the source of all emotion cannot exist.
There is no grasping or holding on. Your wanting is fulfilled. Insecurity is lost because there are, or here, all needs are satisfied. You are truly in your divine nature. Desire gives way to contentment, a deep personal and universal contentment. You now see the perfect order in creation. Time does not exist for you here, but it does for those back on earth. In their years and centuries, you watch eons of time come and go. You now understand the mystery of existence on such a huge scale that they try to possess another person or continue to argue over property seems incomprehensible when you see the tiny fragment of time that they call life. That they could or would divide themselves in the name of their gods is incomprehensible. With such small comprehension of the greater mystery, they cry for help to understand their small world. And in this you find your purpose, to help them. Here is the centre of the universe. There is a stillness. And this stillness you choose to carry back to your little home. This stillness seems to be the key, the stillness of timeless space. You choose to understand it. This is the map, the stillness you find, and now you might transport it home. This one element of the centre of the universe beyond all else, a gift that you can transport from your journey, from this home in the cosmos to your home in your body, on your earth, stillness, you will carry it. Now, just before we leave, can we, in this place of wonder, take time to contemplate the laws that pervade all creation? It seems wise to explore all we can before we return to our material home. Can we understand this universe enough to bring this perspective back with us and therefore understand life on Earth from this different viewpoint? We can know what that, whatever happens, in human associations must be found already established in the universe. The laws are all pervasive and therefore understanding universal law is understanding nature's law and therefore understanding human nature. We can only operate freely to the degree that we conform to these laws on earth. There is no part of creation where these laws are not obeyed. What may seem like chaos and confusion to an earthly ant operating in the perspective of an anthill is really operating under the laws of order from the centre of the universe. No movement anywhere in the entire universe escapes it, including on our earth. There is order in the chaos. You will never find a law that prevails in the sky that is not mirrored by nature and human nature on Earth. And in the next audio, I'd like to take you through the universal laws of nature. This is Chris.